This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we are talking with a great author, good friend, and really uh, outstanding thinker about a topic that uh, we all confront every day. What is good leadership? How do we understand what it means to be an effective leader as well as a persuasive and ethical leader in the world of social media, the world of flaming, the world of difficult, difficult issues and difficult opposition to getting anything done? Uh, our guest, Mark Updegrove, has written a number of books on presidential leadership. and His most recent book is really an excellent, elegant study of John F. Kennedy and uses John F. Kennedy in many ways as a window into the possibilities and the limits of leadership in our world. It's a book uh, I hope you all will pick up and read. It's an eminently readable and deeply researched book. It's called Incomparable Grace. JFK in the presidency. Um, Mark, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Jeremy. Good to hear your voice after so long. (laughs) It is nice to be able to have a conversation. Uh, Mark is a presidential historian. He's the author, as I said, of uh, five books on the presidency. He's also interviewed, I believe, just about every living president, uh, except for Donald Trump. Is that correct, Mark? That's that's correct, except the guy down in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Whoever that is. Whoever that is. Uh, Mark serves now as the president and CEO of the Lyndon B. Johnson Foundation. I, I get to consider him a neighbor. We don't see each other often enough. And uh, before that, uh, he was the director of the LBJ Presidential Library. Mark is also a presidential historian on ABC News. And uh, earlier in his career, uh, among other things, he was a publisher of uh, Newsweek. And if you read his newest book, you'll find out that he had a very close relationship with Hugh Seide, who was the, uh, I guess, the editor of Time Magazine. Is that correct, Mark? He was, you know, he was the Washington bureau chief, uh, Jeremy, but it was such an outsized, it had such an outsized power. He might as well have been the editor of of Time Magazine, as as John Kennedy uh, knew, as as so many other presidents, that he just had an incredibly important vantage point on the presidency, and as a consequence, those uh, those presidents really looked to his column in so many ways to 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 see how they were doing. Well, for those of uh, you who buy and, and read Mark's book, uh, there's some wonderful insights from, from Hugh Seide that Mark, Mark shares, as well as Hugh, insights from Scotty Reston and many other journalists uh, of the time. Before we get into our discussion with Mark, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. What is uh, today's title, Zachary? Never Again the Same. Let's hear it. Sometimes there are words when whispered they are meaningless but they mean the world when you shout them in the shadow of a wall or on a football field under a hot sun which obscures the moon. Sometimes there are places when you see them on a map they seem hollow, a couple of old municipal buildings and a square in the center of town. But you can see in the video, recorded hazy from across the lawn, how this was once, for a few moments, the center of the world. Sometimes there are moments when described to you they are meaningless, they seem so abstract, so absurd, unexplainable, a bullet flying unimagined. 
but you would have had to be there, had to have seen the way she held him as he was dying. What would we give not to remember how it really was, to stay in that imagined moment when we all cried at the same time, to stay forever remembering the promise that was never fulfilled, the hope that was never realized, words and places and moments that never really were and would never again be the same. I love it, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is about the uh, huge mark that uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, his presidency, his assassination, left on the American psyche, but also the ways in which he, has, he and his family have sort of become mythologized. And, and we, re- we remember them in hindsight, perhaps differently than, than we experience them as, as a country. I think that's such a wonderful uh, opening, Mark, to, to discussing your, your fantastic book. Why did you write this book on John F. Kennedy? So many other books have been written. What did you have to say that others haven't said? Well, first of all, Zachary, what a magnificent poem. And, and uh, I to, uh, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, Jeremy, but that, that just that phrase, a bullet flying unimagined is just yes. an incredible way of depicting the, the unimaginable assassination of John F. Kennedy when it occurred in 1963. But to answer your very good question, Jeremy, yeah, there's an old adage, write the book you want to read. And I had read a lot of books about John F. Kennedy, some voluminous and very comprehensive, but not the book uh, about Kennedy that I really wanted to read. And he is such a fascinating and enigmatic subject and led us through such consequential, turbulent uh, times, triumphant in many ways, tragic in others. And I wanted to give the reader a sense of that, sort of this, this cinematic glimpse of Kennedy and all that he's dealing with on any given day, internationally and domestically. I wanted to, the, the readers to f- feel those vicissitudes, you know? And I, I hoped I achieved it with a brisk but dramatic take on the two years and 10 months that John F. Kennedy spent in the White House. Well, you absolutely succeeded, at least for this reader, in in both of what both of the things you just mentioned. Uh, it's it's a brisk read, as you said, but it's also a moving, moving cinematic, uh, but but more than cinematic, rueful and mm. thoughtful uh, account of his life. You, you open with uh, one of the low points of his presidency, which might surprise a lot of readers: the Vienna summit of 1961, when in a certain way, uh, the leader of the Soviet Union embarrasses this young president. Why did you start there? You know, because you mentioned Scotty Reston, uh, who was the renowned columnist on the presidency for the New York Times. After this two-day summit that happened in early June of 1961, Kennedy, as you said, has just been ravaged by by Nikita Khrushchev through these two grueling days where where Khrushchev is just constantly nipping at his heels and getting the better of Kennedy. And Kennedy knows he's been bested. Uh, He talked about the the great chess match of leadership, and he knew he was outmatched by Khrushchev during those two vital days. And knows that Khrushchev leaves that summit emboldened, thinking that Kennedy was, in Khrushchev's words, too intelligent, 
and too weak. And by too intelligent, he means he's book smart, but he's not street smart. I can exploit this guy, Khrushchev thinks, coming out of this. And Kennedy knows this. And so he goes back to the uh, American embassy in, in Vienna and talks off the record to Scotty Reston. And he admits to Reston that he has been savaged by Khrushchev. And he realizes until Khrushchev doesn't respect him, that there could be a crisis that emerges out of uh, Khrushchev's deep confidence that he can outmaneuver Kennedy. So that becomes this crucible in, in Kennedy's leadership. He knows he needs to show Khrushchev that he is a strong leader or Khrushchev will move to exploit him. And, and in your vivid description of this, and it really is vivid, uh, and, and you bring out uh, Kennedy's words, you bring out his emotions, it, it does resonate with, I think, the central challenge of contemporary leadership, what President Biden must live with every day, which is the sense that you're in the most powerful office in the world, but you have a, almost unceasing opposition from external actors of Vladimir Putin or Nikita Khrushchev internal actors, in Kennedy's case, the military that doesn't trust him. You're, you're, you're really detailed in your description, Mark, also in former President Eisenhower and mm -hmm. others who, who really don't think this man is up to the job, this man who barely wins the presidency in the closest election, as you say, in the 20th century. How does Kennedy deal with that? How does he, how does he move forward in, in this almost unwinnable situation? You know, you've written about this, uh, Jeremy. You talked about the challenges of, of modern uh, presidential leadership in, in the impossible presidency. It's a, it's a really difficult task. Kennedy, as you said, comes into the, the presidency with this very narrow victory, the narrowest of the 20th century, 118,000 votes, sort of the difference between a President John F. Kennedy or a President Nixon in 1961. And yet he moves very quickly to get the, the American people rallying around him, partly through his iconic inauguration speech, which is so indelible, uh, in which he says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, which instantly becomes this eternal expression of the American ideal, thinking about something greater than ourselves. But while he had had the country rallied around him, uh, he quickly stumbled with the Bay of Pigs and the, the failed incursion of Cuba uh, as we tried to, to oust Fidel Castro from, from leadership. And yet, and this really says something, Jeremy, and yet in that desperate hour in his presidency, so soon into a very auspicious run in the White House, he sees his approval rating at 83%. This is after the Bay of Pigs. Only 5% of the American public disapprove of his job performance. And it shows an American far more unified than today. I mean, how different is that than today when so many people are rooting against a Joe Biden as our president? But we also realized that it was so important to have a strong leader at a time when the Soviet Union was vying for hearts and minds across the world and trying to dominate much of the world landscape. That was the central crisis of the age. In that moment, Jeremy, and then, then at uh, that desperate moment in his presidency, I think Kennedy shows to some degree his character. He's, he's humble. Uh, he takes accountability. As he says in a press conference, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with me, as Truman might have said. Uh, he took responsibility and vowed to the American people to do better. 
And he does. He learns from that very important lessons that help him to circumvent the challenges in his in his most desperate hour in the presidency, which would come the year after with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why do you think Kennedy was able to become such a unifying figure? I, I mean, in, in the years following one of the closest elections in American history, right, uh, probably nearly every American who was eligible to vote in 1960 remembers voting for John F. Kennedy. How is it possible that he could have become such a unifying figure? It seems almost unimaginable today. Yeah, it does, Zachary. I've always appreciated the, like like your father, as an author, I appreciate the power of words and he and I do public speaking a lot, and and you know we we get um, how words are enormously powerful in conveying ideas uh, and and inspiring people and getting getting people people to to coalesce. There's a wonderful quote from Clement Attlee that I relate in the book, and Attlee was the successor to Winston Churchill, and he's talking about. Um, Churchill's rhetorical splendor during the Second World War when it was so vitally important. And he says, uh, words at great moments can be deeds. And Kennedy shows us this. He doesn't accomplish a great deal in the presidency, particularly compared to his successor, Lyndon Johnson, who was a legislative genius and and uh, promulgated the Great Society, which fundamentally changed America. But those ideas that Kennedy put forth so artfully, so elegantly in the speeches he gave, made us believe in ourselves as, as a nation, and I think made made citizens of the world believe in the United States as a leader, as as a beacon of freedom. And there, you know, he goes on this rhetorical hitting streak at a certain point in 1963, the last year of his life, that is, you know, tantamount to you know Ted Williams in 1941. <laughs> it's remarkable all these speeches back to back to back that in different areas that fundamentally change who we are in, in many respects. I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Mark. It's one of the lasting lessons for me from your book. And and the quote from Atlee's, which is on page 226, I, I had not actually seen before. And I'm going to use it now and cite you also, obviously. Uh, how does one do that? I want to dig a little deeper. And you have so many nuggets in your book about this. Uh, because every president, of course, uh, tries to be eloquent. Kennedy was in some sense trying to be Franklin Roosevelt and, and every president since Kennedy tries to mimic Kennedy or mimic Reagan. Why is it that some presidents are able to do this and others aren't? And why was Kennedy able to do this? And even his successor, who interestingly comes on stage late in your book, right? Lyndon Johnson. Why was he unable to do this? You know, it's interesting because um, at one point there's an interview that that Kennedy does with Ben Bradley, who was then... Um, the, covered the presidency for Newsweek, and they were they were good friends. And, and before a dinner party, uh, Bradley starts interviewing John F. Kennedy, and you can hear this interview at the JFK Library. But Kennedy calls himself the antithesis of a politician, and by that he means he's not the kind of baby kissing, back slapping, name knowing politician that his maternal grandfather Honey Fitz, the very colorful mayor of Boston, was. And yet at the same time, Kennedy concedes that he fits the times. And I think what he was suggesting is that he understood that he could master the medium of television. Great politicians, whether for good or for ill, master the mediums of their age. Uh, Jefferson did it with partisan newspapers. Uh, Lincoln did it with the written word. Um, he was a great... He, he was a, uh, 
a wonderful writer and, and had these memorable speeches, but very few people heard those speeches. You read those speeches in newspapers. He understood the importance of the fledgling art of photography, which he used in his successful uh, presidential campaign in 1860. Roosevelt, who you just mentioned, mastered radio, which was the medium of his time, talking to people directly. Kennedy did that with television. It was, the television age was coming into prominence when Kennedy came into office. And But for television, it's likely that Kennedy wouldn't have been chosen as our 35th president. The debates, the first presidential debates in history, were held on television between Kennedy and Nixon. And um, many of us, are, 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 as presidential nerds, can summon those <laughs> images of a very pasty-faced, uh, five o'clock shadowed Richard Nixon versus this glowing, handsome, leading man type in John F. Kennedy. And that image really mattered. So uh, good politicians understand the importance of the mediums of their time, and they, un they understand the importance of image. Kennedy got both of those things very vividly. It, it, just in terms of um, the speeches he gave, Jeremy, let me just give one example, if Please. I may, of why Kennedy was so effective. And it comes in 1963. Kennedy had reacted largely to the crisis of civil rights. He wasn't proactive at all. He was trying, in fact, to tamp down the civil rights movement because it exposed not only the nation, but to the world, to the worst of American apartheid at a time when, as I mentioned, we were trying to compete for hearts and minds across the world with the Soviet Union. That made us look bad, like we weren't living up to our ideals as a nation. You but call it disengaged at one disengaged, point. Huh? Absolutely, Jeremy. And you and I have talked about this, how Kennedy was so reactive on this. But eventually, he sees the, the crisis brewing in Birmingham where uh, Martin Luther King had had brought his campaign, the most segregated city in America. Uh, and he finally realizes he's got to go on TV to... to um, to ensure that George Wallace, who is standing in the doorway of the University of Alabama trying to prevent its integration, does not get the headline that night, does not get the, the lead story in the six o'clock on the six o'clock news. So he is encouraged by his brother Bobby to go and speak to the issue of civil rights on television. Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, tells Kennedy he doesn't have enough time in eight hours to write a presidential primetime speech. But Bobby uh, encourages his brother to go on anyway and to speak from his heart. So this very uh, iconic speech about civil rights is largely extemporaneous from Kennedy, who had the courage to go on television, national television, and speak his mind about the issue of civil rights. And in so, he calls it a moral issue, elevating the cause of civil rights to a moral issue for the first time in, in our history. And it is a turning point in the struggle for civil rights. And as you show, uh, civil rights leaders uh, who had been, let's say, lukewarm on Kennedy, like Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, and others, they themselves see it as a turning point at that time. Uh, as Martin Luther King says uh, of Kennedy after the speech, that white boy just hit it out of the park. <laughs> I, I wanted to point out also, Mark, that one of the one of the many things I learned from your book uh, is how effective Kennedy's press conferences were as well, which I think is another version of what you're talking about now. His ability, uh, yes, to use the words that Sorensen and other speechwriters, Richard Goodwin, had put together for him, 
but his ability to own the words and often to uh, extempor- extemporize off the cuff and connect with an audience. Uh, you say, it's extraordinary, this, this is uh, around page 60 in the book, that uh, about 18 million people uh, on average saw his press conferences, 90% of Americans, 90% of Americans watched at least one of his first three, according to a 1961 poll. That, that's extraordinary. That's the Twitter of its time, isn't it? That's exactly right. And and I think the American people were able to see Kennedy in his element going, you know, toe-to-toe with some of these wonderful journalists. He Kennedy had been a journalist himself at the close of the Second World War when he left the military. He went and worked for Hearst newspapers in Europe covering the war. And he had great respect for journalists. Uh, I, that didn't mean he, he always agreed with what they wrote about him it certainly took exception to a lot of what they they wrote but he was so beguiling and i think the american people could see uh, his facility with uh, with with language uh, with the, the 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 english language uh, his uh, extensive knowledge of the issues and frankly he was this this was the must-see tv of its time in many ways we were just so beguiled the press included with this young, elegant, auspicious president. And it's interesting, five days after his inauguration, I believe a third of all Americans tuned into that first press conference uh, because we were so entranced by him. And among other things, Jeremy, he had to tell the American people to stop sending letters and telegrams (laughs) because the West Wing (laughs) was becoming overwhelmed. I think one of the the biggest concerns that that a lot of young people like myself have is is that maybe the skills today that are required to run for political office to win the presidency uh, to to campaign so effectively and 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 win so many people over are not the same ones uh, that that are best adapted for for governments. Uh, how did how did Kennedy's skills as a communicator uh, translate or 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 uh, connect to his skills in, in, in government and as a legislator, not not as a legislator, but as as someone with a legislative agenda. Well, I think he was able to convey those ideas very uh, effectively and successfully to the American people and to a large extent the world. When when Kennedy stands in front of the Berlin Wall and says, "Ich bin ein Berliner," I am a Berliner because. I'm a citizen of freedom, hence a, a citizen of Berlin. You know, that makes a, a, a marked impression. But I, I think um, you're right, Zachary. Those are two fundamentally different skills. On the one hand, you have somebody who uh, needs to convey ideas to the American people, to the to the press. And on the other hand, somebody who has to work behind the scenes to get his agenda uh, done your dad mentioned uh, LBJ earlier and why LBJ was not able to um, effectively communicate as JFK did. I think, and I just want to add to that, um, Kennedy, we we have this word as though it's a brand new concept in uh, 21st century America, authentic. Um, We had other words that were just like that, sincere or or genuine, but, but Kennedy was authentic. He didn't pretend to be anything that uh, he wasn't. Um, he knew he was a, a, a child of, of great wealth. In fact, he gave a press conference uh, where it was expected that he would be running for president. He, he whipped out of his pocket a, an imaginary telegram from his father, and it read, uh, Dear Jack, 
don't buy any more votes than necessary. I'll be <laughs> damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't um, contrive a personality that he thought would fit the American people. He was very much himself. Lyndon Johnson, on the other hand, while he was incredibly effective behind the scenes, perhaps no one was more effective than him in the 20th, 20th century, contrived this you know, ostensibly presidential personality that simply was not authentic. It was disingenuous. And it really sort of, in effect, tamped down the Lyndon Johnson that was so powerful behind the scenes. So I think that was part of Kennedy's appeal. He was he was really the the genuine article. He was the real deal. Uh, and part of that was his authenticism. Mark, that's so well said. And and I think your book lives up to its title. I mean, you, you your story is a story of policy, of course. It's a story of uh, of an individual. It's a biography. It's an analysis of the presidency. But it is really a story of how Kennedy uh, uses his grace to lead. And of course, it's the oldest story in the world that, that the great leaders, whatever that means to be a great leader, that they have grace. There's something, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had a certain grace uh, about him. Uh, and and um, I think you capture that. You describe that as well as anyone I've read uh, on this. I, I wonder, though, how then you think about that in light of many of the other things you include in the book as, as, as the honest historian you are, that, that run against this. I mean, the test of any book is, does it capture the complexity of, of a life? And yours certainly does. Um, in particular, you, you very honestly and in, in, in great detail talk about Kennedy's affairs. And it's hard to have a conversation about Kennedy today without talking about that, uh, particularly the story of Mimi Beardsley, which we only learned about, I guess, a decade or two ago, right? This 19-year-old intern who I think it's fair to say is sexually exploited by the president. Um, yet there's the image, of course, of Camelot and Kennedy and Jackie and the children. You're also very clear that Kennedy was not the most engaged uh, father. This is not a book on that. And Kennedy is not a model of, of child rearing, right? So I'm just curious how you think about this. All lives are contradictions in a way. How, how do you think about this in relationship to the grace that you also describe? Yeah, it's a fair question, Jeremy. And I had to wrestle with that too, as you do with any biography. Uh, Kennedy stands on feet of clay at times and shows flashes of greatness at others. And I think that his great moral failing is, um, is his womanizing. That said, I, I'm certainly not rationalizing womanizing, but I remember talking to Gerald Ford years ago, and he was talking about Washington in that age. And he said that it was, you know, it was quite common. In fact, it was the, the general rule that, uh, a, uh, a lawmaker on Capitol Hill had had affairs, illicit or otherwise. Some were very open. I don't. Uh, Gerald Ford certainly did not. I think he was faithful to his wife. They had a very close relationship. But most of his contemporaries, most of his peers, did. Kennedy was certainly no exception. In, in the testosterone-filled Kennedy household, it was really almost a a way of keeping score, a way of keep you know keep competing with his father and his brothers. And, and to some degree, so y y you can chalk it up to being part of the zeitgeist. By the same token, there is that relationship with Mimi Beardsley that you referenced very astutely. You just can't get over that. He, he, he uh, not only exploits her, he really objectifies her. He, he makes her almost this concubine. And in fact, at, at one point, um, 
you know, commands her to perform a sexual act on a friend and aide. Uh, and I'm, that just can't be chalked up to the zeitgeist or uh, that is just a deep, deep personal flaw. And it's really hard to get around. By the same token, you see Kennedy in leadership and in, in, um, in these pivotal moments in the presidency. And as you suggested, Jeremy, he does show a certain grace uh, that helps us to, to circumvent the crises that, that he was laden with during the course of his presidency. Right. And you certainly show that very well in, in, a, in a really well-described few chapters, I think, on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and I, I want readers to read the book. I don't, I don't want us to share all that with them. I want them to buy the book to read that. I think the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you say, is probably the most significant Cold War crisis. I, I'd like us to close, Mark, on uh, the natural place to close, um, the assassination. And um, not so much what happens. I think everyone knows the story, uh, but more how we should think about it today. Is is it really a turning point in our history? And and how do you look upon it? It's one of the things I think you do that's very new in this book. You're, you're looking upon that assassination now, not just uh, about 50 years hence, but also uh, from the perspective of, of what's happened in the last decade or two to the nature of American democracy. So, so how do you look upon that moment right now? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great tragedy. We have, um, we have seen this president through almost three years of, again, this incredibly consequential time in our history. And he is showing tremendous promise. So Kennedy is cut down, I'm going to use Zachary's words here, by a bullet flying unimagined when he is in his prime. He's 46 years of age. He's gone through perhaps the most dangerous hour of humankind with the Cuban Missile Crisis and stands on the world at that point unparalleled. There is nobody who has the stature of John Fitzgerald Kennedy when he is killed in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. I think the, 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 there are myths that spring up about uh, Kennedy, partly because he's martyred, Jeremy, that get in the way of remembering Kennedy, perhaps as we should. We imagine what Kennedy would have done had he faced Vietnam or civil rights or other things. And I think my, my guess is there would have been travails that affected Kennedy that would have diminished uh, our view of him in time. There were these daunting crises that he would have faced. Right. And we can think of Kennedy and what he would have done and imagine the very best of outcomes, but by no means would would Kennedy have necessarily been able to deliver them. Mm-hmm. I think, in, in and you were alluding to this earlier, in, in so many ways, Kennedy is also a symbol of what it is to be free because of the the soaring rhetoric of his uh, administration including the uh, you know the iconic addresses he makes at the foot of the Berlin Wall and American University and uh, at his inauguration we think of him in some ways as symbolizing what it is to be American and what American democracy means to the world I think there's a lot to that. And uh, our final question, Mark, uh, and it's the one we always ask, and I know it's one you think about deeply. What should we, what should young listeners in particular take from Kennedy's life? Uh, what, what are the lessons uh, for leadership today? You know, I, I think it, it, we look at the, um, 
the the what a perilous state democracy is in right now. I know that this that's what this podcast is ultimately about, Jeremy, and and we understand its fragility now more than any time in at least a generation. But there were existential crises that democracy was going through in Kennedy's era as well as. Again, we were at the height at that time of the Cold War, and we saw Soviet tyranny and, to a large extent, Chinese tyranny posing a threat on on the world stage. Um, So I I, I think that this is nothing new, and we can get through it if we resolve to make this country as strong as possible. And the one thing I would urge, urge young people in particular to do is get involved in the electoral process. Jeremy, you're... Uh, you're married to an elected official. You know how yes. important this is. Yes. Uh, and I would urge them to certainly to vote, but also to get in a, uh, to, 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 to volunteer at the polls, to volunteer on campaigns, to get educated on the issues. There are other things you, we can do to, to strengthen our democracy, but there's nothing more important than voting the right people into office. Absolutely right. And it's one of the central messages of, of our podcast, the importance of participatory democracy. And that means getting involved in all ways that one can. Zachary, is Mark's description of Kennedy and this discussion, does, does it open open avenues for young people, you think? I think so. And I think what's powerful about his analysis is that uh, it, it's, it's very much aware of, of Kennedy's flaws. And I think we have to remember when we look back on our history uh, that that it is not the story of of a few perfect moments right. that we've never managed to achieve again, but of a, of a number of flawed and yet and, and yet very successful, hopeful moments in our history. And we have to be able to learn from both the uh, the um, enormous achievements of those moments, but also also the failings. I I think uh, Mark that Zachary has given the the perfect answer for why people should read your book. What do you think, <laughs> Zachary? I owe you, I, I owe you big time. By the way, I think you should run for office, but that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> we have that conversation quite often, and our <laughs> listeners often tell me that too. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and for writing this book. I want to remind our listeners it's Incomparable Grace by Mark Updegrove, and it's a fantastic. Uh, book. It's a, it's a thoughtful and deep read, but also a quick read. And I encourage you to, to buy a quick read in the best sense in that it's a, it's a book you don't put down. And you, you begin it uh, in New York City and you land in Los Angeles and you've finished it, uh, which is the mark of a good book in my mind. Uh, mark, congratulations. Jeremy, Zachary, thanks so much. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you, Zachary, for your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week's episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.